0: I don't know how many of you guys have been watching the Olympics. Spent uh, two hours that I'll never get back watching the triathlon uh, this afternoon <laughs> because it was on. And I thought, wow, I've never seen a triathlon. And now I know why <laughs> I'd never watched a triathlon. Wow. Fascinating, amazing. I mean, they're swimming for just over, a, or just under a mile. They're biking for over 25 miles and then they're running for six and a half miles at the end of all that. And the, the winner set a pace on his run after biking and swimming of four minutes and 40 seconds per mile, which is unreal, right? Especially after you've done all that stuff. It's unreal for me after whatever, anything, right? There's never a chance that I'm ever going to run that. But I, I found myself cheering for the the Americans in the triathlon. I didn't know we even had American Americans in the triathlon, but then I was watching it and there they were. They had USA on their Speedo onesie things that they wear. And they were out there doing it, and uh, they didn't win, but um, I felt myself cheering for them because we like to cheer for those that we're represented by, and there's other sports that Americans do way better than swimming, biking, and, and running all at the same time. Uh, for instance, just swimming uh, alone, right? Katie Ledecky was, uh, was swimming earlier uh, in the Olympics, and if you haven't watched the race, apparently she won, um, and my wife was watching it. She said that the first 300 meters She was kind of laying back. Somebody else, this Canadian, was. isn't that just like America? They're like, hey, Canada, why don't you go out and think that you're good, and then we're going to come and just do everything that you do better than you. Hockey, maple syrup, pancakes, all that stuff. Uh, Mounties, if we had them, we would be better than Canada, right? But this Canadian girl, she was out there. She was leading for like 300 meters, and then Katie Ledecky, the United States swimmer, just was like, okay, I'm going to win now, and she kicked it into gear and, and won the gold medal. We celebrate when our team wins, don't we? And we even say that, what I just said when our team wins. And we'll say things like, we won. We win. If you're a Bucs fan, the Bucs just won the NBA championship. And you're thinking, we won the championship. But really, at the end of the day, you didn't do anything for that, did you? It's like when I was a JV football player, because I um, thought I was going to be bigger than I was. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and I, I got stress fractures in my vertebrae, so I, di- I didn't play the whole season, and I don't think I would have even if I didn't have stress fractures, but it was a convenient excuse for why I was on the bench and not dressed, uh, but my team made the playoffs, and I started to celebrate, and I was running out on the field celebrating, and one of the coaches, this is Texas, by the way, so football is, is God after God, uh, one of the, the coaches pulled me back, and he looked at me, and he said, son, why are you celebrating? You didn't do anything, and I was, okay, you're right, I, I didn't. Um, Thanks for pointing that out though. But, but isn't that kind of the reality for us? We celebrate the victory of somebody else and, and we kind of want to share in their glory, don't we? We won, we won the gold medal. We won the championship. We won this, but really we, we didn't do much. The person that deserves the glory is the one that actually participated, actually accomplished it, right? Katie Ledecky is the one that's on the podium. You and I aren't on the podium. She is. And we celebrate because she represents us. Likewise, when we look at our relationship that we have with God the Father, this relationship that allows us to come in here and sing the name Yahweh, right? Just think about that. A name that the the Jews, even today, the Orthodox Jews at least, won't even pronounce out of sheer reverence for the the, the character of God. And they're afraid that if they say it while sinning, that they're going to reap judgment. And we were in here crying out at the top of our lungs as we're singing. Yahweh, right? What gives us that familiarity with God? Well, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. But just like when it comes to sports, sometimes we're tempted to make the gospel, to make the victory that Jesus won about us rather than about him, the one who actually won it. And it becomes about us wanting the glory, us thinking, look how awesome we are. Well, of course, God saved me. Look, he's going to get this incredible return on his investment. I mean, look at how awesome we are. uh, No doubt he would have saved me. I was a good person. I didn't really need that much grace. I wasn't as desperate or as bad as this other person. And these are all thoughts that begin to make the gospel about us instead of really about how amazing and how awesome and how spectacular Jesus is. This whole series, as the title of the series is, has been about how Jesus is better. He's amazing. He's worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our exaltation in every sphere of our lives, and that certainly involves our relationship with God that we enjoy because of the cross. See, our salvation and what our passage is going to show us tonight is first and foremost about the exaltation about of Jesus. Do we benefit? Yeah. He's our representative. We can celebrate the victory that he won on our behalf. But it's really not about us. It's about the exaltation of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is better. So take your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 5. And we're going to get down through verse 13 together this evening. Last time we were together, two weeks ago, I believe it was, we covered the first four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, where the writer begins in verse one, we have to pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We have to hold fast to the gospel because look, if the Old Testament law that was given by angels, because remember kind of 30,000 foot view, the the writer has been talking about how Jesus is better than the angels in this opening first chapter and a half. He's saying, look, if if the law, which was mediated, given through angels, proved to be reliable, in in other words, the, the transgressions were punished, How much greater punishment are we going to incur if we reject Jesus? Because Jesus is better. His message is better. Jesus is better, better than the angels, right? And he continues on here, giving this apologetic, if you will, for Jesus being better than the angels. In verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Stop there for a minute. The author, again, in in proving this point that Jesus is, is better than the angels, says, hey, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes this passage from the book of Psalms, from Psalm eight verses four through six, which it says this, if, if you don't have it there on, on your device or in your, your Bible, if you can't flip over there real quick, it's right here on the screen. It says, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? David is reflecting on the amazing reality that God created the universe and created the world and then looked at Adam and Eve, looked at his creation, looked at humanity and said, hey, you guys are to rule it. You guys are to, to, to subdue it. And to be my image bearers, my representatives over all of creation. And that's what David's reflecting on. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, than the angels. And you've crowned him, men, human beings, men and women, with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion. You've given him charge to rule over the works of your hands, God. We have to rule over the creation that God wrought, and you've put all things under his feet. So this goes back to the, the creation act where God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, and he said, look, let us create man in, in, our, in our image, and, and that's what he did. And then he said, hey, you are to rule and reign. You are to subdue creation. And that was the task that God gave humanity. Well, how do we do with that task? How many chapters did it take us to mess that one up? Uh, one right? Genesis 3, Genesis three fifteen, right? And, and the whole Genesis, actually Genesis 3, 1 through 9, you've got Eve and you've got the serpent coming up to Eve saying, hey, did God really say? And Eve said, yeah, he really did say that. In fact, he said, even if we touch it, we're going to die, which God didn't say, but it just shows us there that Eve understood. Satan tempts her, Eve gives in, Adam, who was there with her, also gives in, they eat the fruit and they fail God's creative mandate to rule and to reign over his creation. And yet David's in awe that God would entrust that to us. Well, the writer of Hebrews takes that passage and says, hey, Jesus is the one that did this perfectly. Where we failed, Jesus didn't fail. He came, he subjected himself to humanity, he took on flesh, he was for a little while made lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings. Yeah, it's true. While he was on earth, He was limited, you could say. He wasn't there in the the, the very throne room in the presence of the Father, the way the angels from Isaiah chapter six are. He he was a little bit lower in his humanity than the angels, but, but the reason why is so that he would be crowned with glory and honor and everything would be put in subjection under his feet. And that's exactly what we see now. If you look back across the page in Hebrews chapter one, verse six, when it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. If you were here with us for that opening message I talked about, or maybe it was the second one, that when he brings his firstborn, Jesus in rank, not in order. We're not talking about Jesus being created, but Jesus is rank. He says, when he brought him into the world, that that word for world is not this world that we see, but it's the world to come. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's that moment of culmination of final victory when God is going to command all of his angels to worship Jesus. And so we see Jesus humanity his humiliation is going to lead to his exaltation. And that everything will then be put into subjection under his feet in Philippians chapter 2 the apostle Paul goes through the what we call the kenosis passage of Jesus that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto but he did what he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant being found in the likeness of flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He says, even death on a cross, right? What does it say right after that? Verse nine says, therefore, because of his humiliation, because for a little while he was made lower than the angels and he took on flesh, he became like those that he He needed to, to save. Because of that, therefore, God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of what? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. So you see his humiliation leads to his exaltation, and that's what the the writer is setting up here for us. He's saying, yeah, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, but we have to understand that in the the paradigm of, of the Father, and the paradigm of God, the way down was ultimately the way to exaltation. The humiliation was paving the way for his glorification. And so it says in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Jesus has the ultimate position of glory and honor over all creation. And this is where the first but may be formulating in your mind. Because you may be thinking, everything is in subjection to Jesus right now? Really? Have you seen what's going on in the world, the chaos and the craziness? COVID, variants of COVID, the, the woke nonsense that's going around out there, CRT, which is just a lie from the pit of hell, like just the, the, the chaos, the disorder, the disunity, the division, not to mention just the normal stuff that goes on of famine and hunger and earthquakes and disease and everything else, and, and all of that, and you want me to buy that everything is in subjection to the feet of Christ? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews answers that. What does he say in verse 8 right after that? He says, at present, right now, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Right now, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But, here's the next but, right? The first but was, look at the world. There's no way everything's in subjection to him. Well, right now, we don't see that. The writer's willing to give us that. But, we do see Jesus. But we do see him, he says, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. We who are those that are in Christ, who have been given the eyes to see, who have had the veil removed from us, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four, who God has allowed to see the truth of the gospel and our need for Jesus, our need for salvation. We see what's really going on and that is that we do have a savior ruling and reigning who is sovereign over all of this, including all of the stuff that I just rattled off a minute ago all of the nonsense, all of the garbage, all of the junk, all of the pain, all of the suffering. Look, it's, it's not random. It's not happening apart from the knowledge and permissive will of God, of Jesus. He's Lord over this whole creation. Everything, yes, is subject to him, but we don't yet fully see it subjected to him the way that we will someday. But we do see Jesus. And we see him. Crowned with glory and honor, notice what it says next, because of the suffering of his death. Again, the humiliation of Christ paved the way for the exaltation of Jesus. We see him, we see the cross, we see his death, we see his resurrection. And now, we understand that though right now we don't look around the world and see the whole world subject to Jesus, that day is yet coming. God is still speaking. Remember at the beginning of Hebrews chapter one, he said long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by our forefathers, by the prophets, Old Testament. But now today he's spoken to us by his son. Well, here's the thing. The fact that we are in this in-between, this already not yet, where Jesus is ruling and reigning and yet not in the fullness of it that we will one day experience, when we're in this interim, where we are in this waiting period, God is still speaking by his son. He's still peeling back the veil. He's still seeing people saved. And that's what's going on here. He's still speaking to them about the suffering of his death. Because look what he says as he continues on. He says, so that the grace of God, by the grace of God, that rather, he might taste death for everyone. Now, let me read that all together again. But we do see him. We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, why did he die? He died so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Y'all, it's amazing to think about what he's saying here. This Jesus, who is the all-powerful one, this Jesus whom the angels were commanded to worship in Hebrews 1.6, this Jesus whose throne is forever and ever, verse eight of chapter one. This Jesus who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, chapter one, verse 10. This Jesus who sits at the right hand of the father, chapter one, verse 13. This Jesus was willingly made a little lower than the angels for the purpose that he might taste death for everyone. Guess who everyone includes? It includes you and me. That Jesus willingly, subjected himself to humanity to taste death for everyone. Because here's the thing, we needed that. We needed that. We needed the representative who would represent us on behalf of God and would pay the penalty that we couldn't pay. And that was death. Romans 6.23 says what? For the wages of sin is, you guys can answer, death. There you go, okay. Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, Paul says there that you and I were dead in our sins before Jesus Romans chapter 6, Paul then says that if we are in Christ, we were buried with him into a death like his. Again, we needed that. Galatians 2.20, I have been, what does Paul say, crucified with Christ. I needed to die and Christ died that death for me and I have been united to that death. You see, we needed Jesus to taste death for us. We needed him to be our forerunner. We needed him to be our representative. We needed him to pave the way, and that's exactly what he did. But he did that not so that we would be exalted, but for what reason? So that he would be exalted. Remember, we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with what? Glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's what we have to understand, that, that our salvation that the cross, that the crucifixion of Jesus was not about glorifying us. It was not about how awesome we are. But it was about the exaltation of Christ. Our first point tonight is this. See the purpose of your salvation as Christ's exaltation. God saved you to exalt Jesus. He saved you so that every time you give your testimony, you are bearing witness not to your merit, but to the merit of Jesus. He saved you so that you won't stand there and say, look how great I am, look how awesome I am, look at how worthy I am of God's investment in me, but so that you will say, no, I am not awesome, I'm not great, and I'm not worthy of the investment that he made in me. But because of his grace, and because of his mercy, and because of his patience, and because of his love, and because of his kindness, and because of his goodness, he saved me. Praise be to God, Jesus is amazing, right? Right? That's the point of our salvation. And we need to to get there and we need to understand that because every single one of us in this room needed Jesus to taste death for us. That word taste means to partake of it fully. To, To own it. This is not like a taste where when you're growing up and your mom and dad just think it's gonna be funny to give you a lemon when you're an infant just to watch your face. If you're like, that's so cruel, wait till you have kids, you'll do it. But you give them a lemon and, and they've never had it before and they put it in their mouth and then and they immediately reject it. They're like, I don't want that. And they don't eat it. At least if your kid has a future in the realm of academics, they're going to leave that, that <laughs> lemon aside, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like a taste test and then it's gone. No, this is a full on, I'm, I'm going to devour it. I'm going to consume it. This is a full partaking of it. You know, we needed that from Jesus because we couldn't do it at all. We needed the fullness of that penalty paid. Y'all, I needed Jesus to taste death for me. I didn't think I did. You know, Growing up, I was as self-righteous as the day is long. I was born in, into a home where my dad was a, a pastor for a while, and I grew up going to church every single weekend. I thought, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm a good kid. I, I didn't do any of the big no-no sins. I wasn't perfect, but I thought, you know, no one's perfect. But overall, I'm I'm a good kid. Parents are impressed by me. People like me. But I needed Jesus to taste death for me. I was prideful. I wouldn't have told you I was prideful. I didn't realize that I was prideful because I was blinded by my sin and blinded by my pride. I was one of those people that thought, yeah, Jesus is nice, as, as long as it's, it's comfortable with what I really want, with what my agenda is. Yeah, I'll take some Jesus and add some Jesus to my life, but don't ask me to make him Lord of my life. I was somebody that was trusting in my goodness. I was trusting in the fact that, that other people thought I was a, a good person. I didn't take my desperation and need of Jesus seriously. I didn't think i needed jesus to taste death for me but oh did i every one of us every single one of us needed jesus to taste death for us needed him to die for us and that's exactly what god did with the Father in his divine plan set in motion by sending Jesus who willingly came and subjected himself to death on the cross for us. Why? For what end? So that so that we would be saved? Yes. So that we would spend eternity in heaven with him? Yes. But, but those are, are building blocks of the real reason. The real reason is so that he would be exalted and given the name that is above all names. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. See, your salvation is not about God looking at you the way that uh, uh, Joseph and Abby are looking at their newborn baby boy, Judah, right? I got to hold him the other day. That kid has some jowls on him, right? He is gonna do okay for himself. God's not looking at you like a cute baby, newborn baby going, oh, look how precious and cute and cuddly and coddly they are, right? No, he saved you so that you would become an instrument of his glory. So that you would begin to trumpet the name of Jesus Christ and praise the name of Jesus Christ and glorify the name of Jesus. Does God love you? Yes. Does he care about you? Yes. Is Psalm 139 true? Does he know the number of hairs on your head and the days that you will live? Absolutely he does. But look, God is not consumed with you. God, by very definition of him being God, is consumed with himself, and we are a part of that if we understand our salvation right. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a time. To what end? So that he would see us come to salvation and then turn and glorify him. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Grab your Bibles and and turn over to this passage if you would. First Corinthians 15 is, is a passage that if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've probably heard around Easter time, or maybe if you've done your daily Bible reading, you've come across it, and you've read it, and you've thought to yourself, man, there's a, a lot in this chapter about what? About the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. This is the chapter where Paul says, look, if Christ has not been raised, then, man, we of all people in the world are to be pitied because we're missing out on a great time, and we are, uh, man, we're just ways that we should eat, drink, and, and die because, There's there's no hope after this, if he hasn't been raised. But then he says this, if we pick up in verse 20. But in fact, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's the first fruits. He's the the one that's going to go as a pledge of everyone else that's coming behind him. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died. For as by a man came death, and that man was who? That man was, rhymes with schmadam, starts with an A. Adam, right, the first Adam. For as a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Notice the glorifi- glorification, the exaltation, the focus on Jesus. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to to be destroyed is death. For God, notice the language here that Paul uses, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Does that sound familiar to what we just read about in Hebrews chapter 2? That God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And what's the context of 1 Corinthians 15? The context is the gospel. The context is the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and his glory in the future. And the fact that he's, it's, it's all about the exaltation of Jesus. And that's what our writer in Hebrews wants us to see too. That our salvation is ultimately about the exaltation of Jesus. You guys, I, I came across something this week on Instagram that I, I just, I couldn't leave alone. Um, bothersome to an unhealthy degree, probably. Look, let me just say this. If you are getting your theology, if your primary theological intake is Instagram, get something different to be your primary theological intake. Seriously. Yeah. Somebody asked me a question about the Instagram ministries on our retreat Q&A. Somebody, please, just write that down. Ask me about Instagram ministries on the retreat Q&A. I don't have time to go over it now, but I will then. But somebody shared this, this post on Instagram, and it was a quote from the great, hear the sarcasm, the great theologian Justin Bieber. <laughs> and guys, it, it was everything I could do not to... here's the quote the quote was this God looks at us with pure adoration no he doesn't adoration involves what it involves worship God does not worship us to buy into that is a, to, to buy into the a, a lie from the pit of hell it's, it's flat out wrong, heretical, garbage nonsense. And people are buying it and going, oh, well, Justin said it, so it must be true. It's not true. God has not ever a single moment in time at any point in history, nor will he ever for any point in history worship anything or anyone other than himself because that is the very definition of God. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about magnifying him and making him known. God doesn't have your picture hanging on his wall in his bedroom. God is about you magnifying Jesus. That wouldn't fit in an Instagram post, so I just didn't didn't reply at all. (laughs) Y'all, God does not worship us. We worship him. Does God love us? Yes. Yes. Let me make that abundantly clear. Does he love us? Yes. He loves you more than any love you've ever experienced from any earthly relationship or will ever experience from any earthly relationship. The the degree to which God loves you, none of us will ever be able to fathom. We're going to spend eternity completely in awe of how much God loves us. However, that love has An end, and the end is not that you would be the object and the focus of attention, but that Jesus would be. God has loved you so much so that you will exalt and glorify Jesus. Again, the purpose of your salvation is Christ's exaltation. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone Verse 10, for it was fitting, it was fitting that he, for whom, and by whom, all things exist, this is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name, To my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. For it was fitting. That word for goes backwards for us. At least it should. And it points back to what he's just said. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For, why did he taste death for everyone? Well, he's about to tell us. Because it was fitting for him to do so. That's a weird word. It it was fitting for. Well, Jesus talked about this fitting nature of the death that he was to die. In Matthew 3, 15, even to identify with his people, he goes out and he's being, uh, he's walking into the water to be baptized by John the Baptist. And you remember what John says. John looks at him and he says, what are you doing, dude? You you baptize me. I'm not going to baptize you. Maybe you didn't hear, but I was telling everybody else, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes, Jesus. You want me to baptize you? And Jesus looks at him and he says this, he says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was, was going out to be baptized, not for the forgiveness of sins, because he was sinless, but to be identified fully with the people that he came to die for. And he says, it's fitting, it's necessary, it's right for this to happen. Later in the gospels, in Mark chapter 8, 31, it says this, and, and Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. That it's fitting for the Son of Man. It's, it's necessary. It's right for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. And after three days to rise again. You remember after one of those instances, what does Peter do? Peter says, hey, Jesus, stop it with the dying stuff. Enough with the whole, it's fitting that you have to die. Don't like, I've got a sword. I'm, I'm, you're good. I've got you. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Petros, right? I'm, I'm, you're good. We're going to cover you. But Peter didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, look, it's, it's necessary that I do this. It's fitting. It's right that I do this. And then in Matthew 26, right before going to the cross, again, he says, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? See, all the reason that Jesus tasted death for us is because according to the plan of God, it was fitting for him to do so. It was right, it was necessary for him to do that. For the end, for us to be redeemed, for him, for the Father to bring many sons and daughters to glory. If God was going to bring us to glory, then Jesus had to taste death for us because there was no other way. Because we couldn't get there on our own. And so it was fitting that he did that in John chapter 5 verse 19 Jesus says to his followers there to the crowds there he says this he says truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise what Jesus is saying here is he's saying there's there's perfect harmony, there's perfect unity, there's perfect union between him and the Father. When he says the Son can do nothing of his own accord, it doesn't mean that Jesus was incapable of doing something. It meant that he, could, he wouldn't go rogue. That based on the very nature of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there was never going to be a time where Jesus would do anything apart from the divine will. That he would always be doing lockstep with the Father desires. Well, the Father desired our deliverance he desired to bring many into glory and if that was going to happen it was fitting that jesus would taste death for everyone it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that he would make the founder of their faith the founder that word founder is a word that can mean leader or trailblazer one that, that went before but it can also be a word that, that means champion hero protagonist captain I think that, that fits the, the, the context here better. The, the, the champion of our salvation, the victor of our salvation, the hero of our salvation, the uh, the, the captain, the, the, the one above all, that he would make him, he goes on to say, perfect through suffering. That's a weird thing for us to, to read, isn't it? Because when we read that our default is to think if if he was made perfect that must mean he was what he was imperfect at a time well that's not what he's saying because we have to keep in mind what he's driving at here and he's driving at the 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 purpose of jesus's existence on here on earth which was to live that perfect life and then die on the cross so that you and i could be forgiven of our sins that he would rise from the dead right Well, for all of that to happen, for God to bring many sons to glory, Jesus had to be made perfect or complete or another way to put it maybe is suitable for the task at hand. And for him to do that would involve suffering. And so there was a fullness, there was a completion of Jesus's task. What was his task? Go to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross, rise from the dead, right? Well, for that to complete, to be brought to completion, for that to be made perfect, Jesus had to suffer. And all of this, again, is fitting according to the plan of God. Remember Luke 24, after Jesus rises from the dead and I think just wants to have some fun, he disguises his appearance and keeps these two disciples on the road to Emmaus from seeing him. He walks up to them, and they're bumming, and he's going, what's up? Why are you upset? You got to just imagine that Jesus is walking behind these guys just smirking more than Pastor Lucas has ever smirked in his entire life, right? Like he's got to just be loving this moment. And they're looking at each other, and they're just sad, and they say, well, we, we thought that this one was going to be the Messiah, but where have you been? They just crucified him. And Jesus then opens their eyes. They see him after a time, but he explains to them. And in the explanation, one of the first things he says, he says this, was it not necessary? Was it not fitting? Was it not mandatory? That the, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must first suffer these things before entering his glory. Why? Because that's the only way that the Father is going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. There's no other way. And so the author of Hebrews says, those who are being sanctified and the one who sanctifies us, the one who sanctifies us is Jesus. By his death, he cleanses us. So we who are being sanctified and Jesus who sanctifies us, we both have one source, and that source is God the Father. We are now sons and daughters of God, just as Jesus is a a son of God. He's the son of God. But as as Jesus is is the son of God, we are sons and daughters of God. And so now notice what he says. Because of this, Jesus is not ashamed to call us what? Brothers, sisters. The son of God is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Why? Because it was fitting for him to suffer so that you could be sanctified, you could be cleansed, and God could bring you into glory as a part of his family. So that now that you're there, now that you're with him, Jesus is looking at you going, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister. Is that not amazing? Okay, my first point was all about, hey, look, your salvation's not about you, right? And it's not about you. But that doesn't mean that you don't get benefits from it. Just like when Team USA wins the gold medal and and sends Canada packing, it's like we're still standing up there going, USA, USA, right? I mean, we're still stoked about that. Yeah, it's not about me. I didn't win. Man, I would be toast in the pool against any of them, right? I mean, I'd be like the Jamaican bobsled team before they got good, right? I'd be drowned. I'd be, give me the floaties. I'd be kicking in the pool. But I'm going to celebrate when my team wins because me and I get to enjoy the, the privileges of their victory. Well, guys, you and I in Christ get to enjoy the privileges of his victory on the cross for us. Are we on the podium? Uh Uh-uh, Jesus is. But do we benefit? Yeah, why? Because now we are part of the family of God and he looks at us and he calls us his brothers, his sisters. That's un... Have You've got that family member, that brother or that sister that you're like, I don't know that I'm there where I can say I'm not ashamed to call that person... My brother or sister, like you guys, go out for family dinner, and you're going, "Mom, Dad, can I sit at the table across the restaurant? Is that okay?" Because we brought him, we brought her, and I just don't know that I can be around them, right? If if anyone should do that to us, it's Jesus, right? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, God, Father, um, have you seen them lately? Do you know what kind of nonsense is going on down there? And I'm not just talking about the world; I'm talking about you and I, Christians. Have you seen? How how what their track record is? Have you seen the last time they did their daily Bible reading? Have you seen? And yet, what does the Bible say? He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's an amazing privilege that we have. Have you ever thought about how it would be awesome to be the sibling of a famous person? I think it'd be pretty cool. Here's what I would want. I would want to be the brother of the president of the United States. I want none of the responsibility, but I do want the White House. I want access to the White House. I want to fly on Air Force One. I want to fly on the helicopter, whatever that thing's called. I want to go in the bowling alley underneath the White House and bowl. They have one of those, by the way. I I, I want all of the access, but don't ask me to to make any decisions for the country. I'm I'm not there. Okay, that's like a sliver of what we've got with our relationship with God through Jesus because of the privilege that we have in being siblings with Christ. And yet we don't, Think about that. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus is my brother. Take your Bibles again. First Peter chapter one, Hebrews, James, First Peter. So turn whichever direction that would be. I don't even know the whole swipe right, swipe left thing. I don't even know which direction that is because I don't know if it's the direction I start or the direction I finish. Same thing with turning the page in the Bible. It's that way. That way in your Bibles, okay? So, First Peter chapter one. Listen to this, okay? First Peter one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through His through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. An inheritance is given to family, right? To children. heirs. He's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, In glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When is the last time that you rejoiced with joy that is inexpressible over the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters? We should be way more encouraged by this, way more amazed by this than we are. Yes, the purpose of our being saved is that we would exalt Jesus and glorify Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we don't get benefits of being saved. Oh, there are benefits to being saved, to being part of the family of Jesus, to being a brother of of Jesus, to being a sister of Jesus. Think about some of the benefits and the blessings of adoption. Of going from being an orphan to belonging to a family. Just a few that came to me as I was preparing this message access. We have access to the Father now through our relationship with Jesus, not as strangers and aliens, not as foreigners, not as visitors, not as exiles, not as aliens. No, we're sons and daughters. We have access to Him, we have security. We have security. Did you catch that in 1 Peter chapter 1? He said, there's an inheritance that's awaiting you, being kept in heaven for you, who are being guarded by what? By God's power through faith. Pastor PJ, once saved, always saved. Yes, what? You guys know. If you are saved. There it is, right? If you are saved, once saved, always saved. Why? Because you're not keeping yourself saved. God is guarding you by power through faith. And keeping you as part of his family. Uh, guess what, y'all? As, as much as it is in my power, right, earthly speaking, I'm going to make sure that my kids are okay. And I'm never going to let them leave my family. Right? Well, How much more so can we have security that God has got us in his family? And he's never going to let us leave his family. See, there's security. There's provision. Every good gift is it comes down from the, the Father above to you. Even Jesus says, look, hey, if, if you, if you yokels, if you guys know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more is your heavenly Father going to give you good gifts? There's a provision that comes with being in Christ, being a brother, being a sister of Jesus. There's status. You're not a child of wrath anymore. You are a child of the King. That comes with status. Not so that we will boast, right? I don't, I'm not going to boast. But, but there's a change in our status. And there are privileges that come with that. There's belonging. And just feeling a sense of I've got people in my life. I belong to the Father. I'm not drifting, He's got me. You have a future. As a child of God. Again, a future that is described by Peter as this inheritance that's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. You have an eternity enjoying that inheritance, and that inheritance at its heart is, is Jesus. You have a future with Jesus. You've got love and apparently community, which popped up together, right? You are loved by God. God so loved the world. Romans chapter five. In this, the love of God has shown that while we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of, of God, Christ died for us, right? You've got this love that apart from Christ, you don't experience. You've got community. You've got brothers and sisters that are here, that you see. Peter said, hey, we don't see Jesus right now, but we we love him, we believe in him, we hope in him. Hey, you know, you've got a community that God has saved you and brought you a part of, and now you are part of a family called the church here where you and and all of us weirdos that are in this room together can all be weirdos together and and love Jesus together as brothers and sisters in Christ until we get to go and, and be in eternity with him. You've got that community as a benefit of your relationship with Jesus. You've got forgiveness If I'm in line at Ralph's and some little kid in front of me, punk little kid, turns around and kicks me in the shins as hard as he can, I'm gonna have a hard time forgiving that kid. I will, because I'm supposed to, but I'm a hard time with it. But man, can I tell you how many times I've had to forgive my kids? So many times. Today, even, right? But why do I do it? Because I love them. Because they belong to me. Kid at Ralph's, I like kids, my kids. I don't I don't so much love other people's kids. It's it's a hard thing. It's a sanctifying thing for me, right? But I love my kids. Don't even look at me like, judge me. Wait till you have your kids, and then you see other people's kids, and you're going, okay, I get it. Um, Yeah, there's forgiveness that we have as part of the family of God. Purpose. You have a purpose now. What's my purpose? We talked about that in point one. What's your purpose? To exalt Jesus, to glorify Jesus with everything that you do, You're not directionless. You're not going, what's the purpose of life? What am I here for? You know what you're here for. Hope. How about that one? Man, does our world want that? You're not hoping in societal change, in cultural change. You're not hoping in a promotion. You're not hoping in a change of scenery. You're not hoping in greener pastures. You're hoping in Christ. And you have that because you're a part of the family of God. And then finally, joy. You have joy. I and mean, oh, the world does not. What about without Christ, though? Without Christ, you're cut off, isolated, anxious, needy. Guilty, fearful, depressed, hopeless, and directionless. I can tell you which list of those I want, right? I want to be with Jesus, I want to be part of God's family. I want the blessings and the benefits that come along with that. Is that the purpose of my salvation? Did God save me for that purpose that I would have all those things? No. He saved me so that I would glorify Jesus, but in doing that, he provided all of that for me because he's a good God and he loves us. And there are benefits to that. There's a privilege to being a part of God's family. I just feel like we don't often think about this enough. Rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible over this. That should cause us to then exalt Jesus all the more for the salvation that we have. you Jesus saved us. He's the one on the podium, not us. He's the one worthy of the glory, the honor, and the praise. And we benefit because he represented us. We needed him to taste death for us. He tasted death for us. And so we benefit from that. We are now sons and and, and daughters. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus, sons and daughters of God, right? And we benefit from that and we rejoice in that. But all the while, we have to remember that ultimately our salvation is not about us. It's about Jesus. Because why? Because the whole point that the author is making in this book is Jesus is better. He's better better than the angels. The salvation, the deliverance that he offers us is better. We would do well to remember that and to reflect on that this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for delivering us, saving us, freeing us from the power of death. Thank you for taking on flesh, being made a little lower than the angels, Jesus, so that through your sacrifice, we might be forgiven. We might be made right with our Father. God, it's amazing that you, in bringing us to glory, as the passage puts us, puts it, would give your son to die on the cross for our sins, that he would taste death for us, knowing that, God, that's the only way that we could be brought to glory, that we could be reconciled, that we could be brought near to you once again, is through the son suffering, that it was fitting for him to do that. And that by a result of that, he looks at us and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. God, give us a greater understanding, though we won't fully wrap our minds around that. I don't think we'll even understand that for all of eternity. We're constantly going to be growing in our appreciation and in thanksgiving for that reality, that fact. But Lord, give us a little bit more than we have right now of that. Increase our affection. May we with Peter say that we are rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible, this boiling, simmering, abiding joy that we have because we are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And that is a a reality that this world can never separate from us no matter what, no matter how hard they try because we who are saved are being kept by the power of, of you, Father, through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Keep us focused on our task at hand, Lord, that you saved us, not, not so that we would kick back and say foolish things like you look at us with adoration, but Lord, you saved us so that we would look at you with adoration, so that we would exalt Jesus, so that we would glorify you in everything that we do. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.